0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the Fanta Grape of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the death metal guy, a.k.a. I'm at the Spencer's Gifts, I'm at the Mortis Show, I'm at the combination Spencer Gifts and Mortis Show.
1: <laughs> wow, that was like far better than the a.k.a. I was anticipating. I, I, I'm I <laughs> The... I don't even have... You know what? Fuck it. The one I made up doesn't make any sense now. So I am the black metal guy. Uh, <laughs>
2: um, re-
1: returned from plague-ridden oblivion.
0: There we go. That'll
1: work. Uh,
0: <laughs> what were you anticipating? Someti- sometimes... I know. I,
1: I just... I totally... Bra- I'm still sick, so I totally brain farted. And you... I asked you what your theme was for the day so I could riff on it. And then you said the se- the elaborate sequence... Goth industrial, goth industrial parody of popular hip-hop song from the late 2000s. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well then my AKA is, uh, you know, um, hip-hop parody of popular goth industrial song from the early 2000s.
0: Oh, that would be. Mm. Oh, oh, no, oh! You thought that was my. AKA? Yes,
1: exactly. I just reversed it. Oh, I, I thought. I thought what we were getting at was the musical singularity we are hurtling towards. <laughs> no, you know, no, no, like, I was, because I, was I think to... we are basically approaching. I mean, we, we're already in a world where, like, surely, like, you know, I don't know. Marilyn Manson did all those corny synth pop covers, right? And then, yeah. like surely like suicide boys is gonna has covered Marilyn Manson or someone more obscure than suicide boys.
0: Yeah, we're we're I mean, we are pretty close to there. We're, we're,
1: I think that's just is where we are. It just a, ex- as
0: as hip hop gets spookier and yes. spookier, it yes. just becomes to, to to geometrically replace goth music the, as a future
1: the future is a fat mall goth chick and jinko stepping on a human face forever.
0: <laughs> Please. I usually have to pay for that kind of service. <laughs> 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 All right. All right, so we got um, a sh- we we gotta show to do. All right, we just fucking wrap it up there. I know it's been two weeks, guys. You know, with the the um, the uh, the wizard assault and then the illness, but we're back on track. Uh, we got a show for you. <coughs> so, uh, uh, real quick uh, housekeeping at the top of the hour. Um, so uh, feel free to follow me, the death metal guy, on Facebook at Terminus Podcast or the black metal guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal. And uh, if you particularly enjoy our discussion of <laughs> the the I- inevitable conclusion of the human race, you can discuss things like that and other topics like it uh, uh, on our Discord, which you can gain access to by giving us $5 a month on Patreon. You'll get access to the Terminus Black Circle, where we... <laughs> Discuss the price points of that sort of fat goth girl service in various cities around the the world. Um, uh, So for something in the the exact opposite direction of the combination Spencer's Gifts and Mortis show, uh, I have a a very uh, curious record for us to feature for our uh, initial mini review. had uh, no idea this album was coming out, but this is a band that I got pretty into a year or two ago. Uh, and I was happy to bring him on the show. And this is the newest record by Love Bites, titled Judgment Day on Victor out of Japan. Uh, So for those who aren't in the loop, um, this is interesting to talk about uh, because Love Bites is a Japanese power metal band that exists within a sort of Japanese power metal ecosystem that the rest of the metal scene tends to ignore. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, coincidentally, uh, Bastard one of the bigger reviewers on Metal Archives these days, actually did a really good review of this record just recently that's going to address some of the same points. Um, so over in Japan, which really has its own musical ecosystem, it also has its own metal ecosystem, which is heavily focused around power metal, uh, typically executed in sort of a 90s European style with its own, weird melodic inflections. Uh, this is actually a pretty big industry over there. Uh, a lot of these power metal bands are treated sort of like pop idol bands. Um, they have... Oh, go ahead. So
1: question, teacher. Yeah. Um, uh, is this uh, like... I think one question people will be asking themselves is like, okay, power metal, Japanese, very popular. Um How is this, I assume this is somehow distinct from Visual Kai, but could you please explain it to us? Uh,
0: Visual, yeah, it's kind of an apples and oranges thing just because Visual Kai, well, originally Visual Kai referred specifically to the visual aspect of certain bands' looks, which was like a hyper-exaggerated take on American glam combined with some goth imagery. Um, Right, so it was
1: not a sound musically.
0: Not really, but then it became associated with a lot of, like, aggressive rock and metal bands. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, if you use the term visual Kai, that could mean a lot of different things. But um, it is tied to power metal through X japan which was, in some sense, a visual Kai band that was also a power metal band. Um, So that distinction, the the exact usage of that term has changed over the years. Hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like... Oh, I guess, like, Deer and Gray would have been a Visual Kai band, even though it was kind of, like, honestly pretty advanced hardcore slash new metal stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Visual Kai could refer to a lot of different stuff, but it tended to be on the harder edge of rock and metal.
1: hmm Okay. So, like, so this is specifically power metal. Um, and is that one reason we don't... So, there's a cult following in the States for, like, right? Weebs love... Uh, or I guess people at an even higher level of weeb than either of us are really into uh, visual Kai-type bands, there's not the same cult following for judgment for, for uh, power metal, Japanese power metal.
0: Um, in some cases, there are. Love Bites, mm-hmm. in particular, is a band that has a really substantial cult following, but that's also because um, Japanese power metal is going to more often be listened to by random weebs as just a random metal band they like because of their <laughs> cultural <laughs> interests, <laughs> than it is by serious metalheads.
1: Yeah, um, okay, it, that makes a lot of sense. It's
0: just culturally completely divorced from the me- from the rest of the metal scene. It's 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 in its own ecosystem, sort of like um, Russia has this whole ecosystem of like gothic metal bands that we would never hear of unless we were specifically digging for it. But they've got hmm. they've got their own sort of cultural ecosystem for that. Um, so. Basically, because of this cultural friction, a lot of people look at these Japanese power metal bands like, <coughs> excuse me, serious metal heads do, and they just dismiss it out of hand because right, right. the people that are into it are fucking weird. Um, like, look at YouTube comments on any Love Bites video and you'll have these multi-paragraph screeds by clearly mentally ill people who have decided that this is the most important band in the world, uh, as, they, as all these guys do with some Japanese band. But don't let that stop you because I think that in terms of continuing the European style of power metal, uh, the Japanese bands are completely scooping the Continent. It's uh, European power metal sort of collapsed on itself in the two thousands uh, just because it kind of felt like the bands didn't know what direction to go in. Um and then later on, more recently, we've seen a rise of a sort of new wave of u s. power metal and then this newer wave of traditional heavy metal. But the high speed, maximalist, flowery European style of power metal has been kind of forgotten, except in Japan, where that's still the primary way to execute the genre. Mm -hmm. And Love Bites is at the top of that. And Love Bites are a really fucking good band. Um, It's easy to dismiss them just because of the very strange cultural cachet they have, but on a purely musical level, they're really excellent. Um, In terms of comparison, I would associate this with early Sonata Arctica, uh, earlier Rhapsody stuff, maybe early Stradivarius, and, of course, just... Because it's Japan, ex-Japan, which is the sort of kernel of DNA inside of every Japanese power metal band. You can't get away from it. Um, So, Judgment Day is the newest record and it is really good. Uh, The last album, which is what introduced me to them, Electric Pentagram, is a very good album but it's also extremely long. It's over an hour and that is just a hell of a lot of material for stuff that is this uniformly fast and dense and crazy. Uh, This one is a lot more reasonable and uh, it just feels a little bit tighter overall. So what defines Japanese power metal? Well, I talked about the roots of European power metal, but also there is a particular Japanese inflection in the way they compose melodies. They've got certain unusual intervallic choices that often have a lot to do with blues or jazz. And, uh, they also are into pretty, pretty aggressive key changes, like much Mm. more dramatic than you would typically hear in American or European power metal. Um, And really, uh, it's just a lot of fun. Structurally, most of these songs are highly elaborated rock and roll song structures. It's a lot of A, B, A, B verse to chorus. But then you'll have these very elaborate pre and post chorus schemes with a lot of opportunity given to the guitarist to show off what they can do. Um, So there's a sort of homogenous texture, but the moment to moment stuff going on is always so intricate and interesting that fades into the background completely. Um, so, I decided for the first sample, let me play one that's just really representative of the Love Bites style and the style on this album. This is a track called The Spirit Lives On, and this is just a great sort of instance of the band's core sound and what you can generally expect them to operate around on this record and the rest of their catalog. What's the So uh, what do you think of that?
1: That was kind of dizzying. <laughs>
0: there's uh, a lot going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. First of all, um, I can see why you brought it on the show, because that is extreme. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, you know, as, as we were listening, I was, I, you know, you heard me. I was struck by the vocals, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the size of her voice. It's like a Diana Ross torch singer type thing. Yeah. Like, and I, I guess that might just be what happens when a, a a woman does operatic power metal vocals, but I don't know. Like, it, doesn't it sound different and like it does from I, and a lot more musical than say something like Unleash the Archers?
0: Uh, no, I agree. Uh, I believe that um, if I recall correctly, the singer in this band comes from like sort of an R and B and pop background. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be part of what you're hearing In addition to how Japanese popular music Has always had this unusual connection to blues and jazz and soul So I think they just have different inclinations in vocal delivery
1: Yeah, and and a whole idea of sort of like um, Sort of like balladry right, mm-hmm. Uh sort of charismatic vocal performer, thing you can sing karaoke to, uh, in all sorts of, like, also I would say probably, like, uh, cabaret music, and things mm, like yeah, that, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it's, um, uh, yeah, yeah, French chanson or whatever, but, like, th- that whole, so you could hear that whole tradition there, but instrumentally, uh, if I had to think of what it reminds me of, it the, for the, the free the free association that jumped into my head was it's kind of like Mongrel's Cross.
0: Yeah, I could like, definitely see that. C-
1: completely mm-hmm. different in terms of structure, in terms of uh, musical objectives, it, all sorts of stuff, right? I mean, these are like totally different, uh, Apples and Oranges bands. But there's a horror vacui approach to songwriting here, mm-hmm. too, right? Every possible space is filled... Um, and that's something, and not in a superficial way, right? There is, uh, while the solo, while the lead is blasted to the front, you still have two channels of rhythm guitar doing different things. Mm-hmm. It's one of those, um, that's a thing that sets apart Japanese bands in general, uh, is the the horror vacui approach to writing. Not just in the sense that they try to fill all space, which you can do... I don't know, while being like late behemoth or something, mm-hmm. right, and having a big production, blah blah blah. But <laughs> in the sense that everywhere you look, there's music.
0: Yeah, right. um, that's especially with Japanese power metal. This maximum density approach mm-hmm. is pretty. That's but, pretty standard for them. But it's
1: in Japanese black metal too, and it, yeah. you know, uh, you know, um, Hakuja who might come up later, right? It, it's it's like that. Every single part you could write. There, nothing is, like, left on default. Every single part you could write for is written and, like, performed to the hill.
0: I get the sense that, um, especially in power metal, but I think in a lot of other stuff, too, the neoclassical tradition is really important to a lot of these guys. I mean, because even listening to that, uh, especially listening to some of those more challenging vocal intervals mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. during that chorus that mm-hmm. that sort of waltz formation yeah. that's a sort of thing that's so definitively neoclassical that's almost forgotten by the European bands these guys sound mm-hmm. more like European court music than the current European power metal bands <laughs> oh well
1: that, and that's also the broader phenomenon of you know Japan being uh, more invested in Europe than modern Europeans yeah yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> The, yeah, the, the, that is, um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And also, yeah, the ability to like write vocal lines that one of the great problems of metal basically is how do you have riff based music with vocal hooks, Mm -hmm. um, and with, with melodic singing. And so because of the neoclassical thing and because of this ambitious multi-level writing, she can like sing melodies that are independently moving from the root notes right uh Mm -hmm. and and, you know every time somebody does that just a little bit in one of the things we cover i'm always like hey that's great right yeah
0: yeah it's it's Mm -hmm. it's very difficult and i think that the way that they do it is you know it's really just a balancing act of like giving all the voices room to breathe Mm -hmm. Um, there's parts where the guitars drop back into these sort of fast palm muted configurations but they always have interesting unique turnarounds to Mm-hmm. add to the riff because the problem with european power metal is that guitars just became a backing instrument at a certain point for vocalists mm-hmm. and synth players yes here um Love Bite still has a lot of primary interest in the guitar as like a main mode of musical mm-hmm. communication um, that's kept in balance with the vocals so i i think it just makes for songs that are a lot more multi-dimensional than a lot of their contemporaries the speed
1: is also, how does the speed stack up against Euro Power Metal stuff? Like, um,
0: to, from, from the era of Power Metal that they're sort of drawing from, it's pretty similar mm-hmm. compared to a lot of European Power Metal. Now it's much faster.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and in terms of like things that I've heard of, I don't know, like it, you know, it's like this, this is being played at like Dragon Force speeds.
0: Yeah, 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 it's, it's like um, it, it'd be comparable to maybe like the first couple, uh, no. the first couple Blind Guardian records. Mm-hmm. Um, because the the other thing about Japanese power metal is that it's got a big speed metal kick to it. That never really goes away. There's yeah. some speed and thrash in the DNA. That's always there.
1: Yeah, that aspect of I think that's an aspect of the power metal thing that was supposed to one of its distinguishing features in the 80s, but I think sometimes people, like, can end up... I think some of the revivalist stuff kind of really conflates it with, with uh, you know, Maiden. Or, yeah. Or with just Maiden, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, there's... Um, a lot of people can't recall the fact that Gamma Ray was, like, extreme and really fucking mm-hmm. fast and intense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, And speaking of which, I want to go to my other sample. Um, so that is sort of Lovebite's core sound, but they'll fluctuate around it. <clears throat> um, usually an album will have one or two more like AOR type songs, which mm-hmm. is just like sure. standard part of the territory. And they're pretty good. Um, but they also go in the other direction and do rougher stuff. So, uh, the roughest song on this record is one called Dissonance, which is really interesting. Uh, and it has like full fledged, kind of techie death thrash riffs, like mm-hmm. you would hear on like an old Pestilence record or something. But mm-hmm. instead, I'm going to go to a track called Stand and Deliver, Shoot 'em Down, um, which is very directly Love Bites doing their interpretation of a Motorhead song. say i really like the way this is something you'll hear consistently across their songs the the constant like solo trading they do there's pretty much a section of that on every song of like Mm -hmm. two or three solos pass back and forth between the guitarists but they always bend the melody back toward the verse in a really satisfying way um, cause that actually, mm-hmm. that solo change up, I mean, it goes through a lot of different passages and moves in a lot of directions and it's really seamless the way it, they wrap it back to that sort of punky verse.
1: Yeah, that was so uh,
0: it, it, it's hard. It was hard
1: to imagine a band sort of this polished and focused on high flying melody doing an approximation of Motorhead that wouldn't just sound. Fall completely flat, uh, and but this makes total sense. This is this is a great song. I like it better than the other one, uh, and and it's like um, in part they 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 stick the landing in part because they're it's not quite Motorhead, right? I totally hear what you mean. They use the template of basically right. Obviously, it's one Motorhead song. They use the Ace of Spades template, mm-hmm. right? Which everyone is allowed to use at least once. Um, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh Motorhead used it several times after that, right? Um but um you know, in some sense the ace of spades template is the basic template for like m- most extreme guitar music. Yeah. Um yeah. But like this is very directly that. Um uh, uh the verses are good in part because they are not sort of um well, you know, you have the verse that's the, the Ace of Spadesy lick, but it's really anchored in heavy thrash riffing, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, bluesy thrash riffing. Uh, and then there are, like, multiple... Basically, there are kind of multiple stages to the verse. Um, and, th- you know, the... Thinking of how this vocalist was going to do a shoutier vocal for this style was... You know, sort of. It, that was hard to conceive, and so the the trade between the gang vocals and and her vocals works well. Mm-hmm. And then you get the um, the thing that really took me aback was the way they just launched the chorus. Yeah, which is a go- very ex- a very effective key change moment, right? Uh, and it's sort of. Um, at that moment, it completely breaks out of what we assume the Motorhead song template, the Ace of Spades template to be, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's, it, it It just, there's your anthemic chorus, um, and that chorus, um, the chorus itself, if you isolate it, and really all of the melodic stuff that comes in after that in the soloing is a lot like Maiden. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the lyrics themselves sound like, uh, Maiden, you know, stand and deliver, shoot them down. So it's about, I don't know, dueling with pistols, right? <laughs> I'm thinking of like the duelists from the back half of Peace of Mind. My favorite is Peace of Mind, right? So I'm thinking of like the duelists or um, Flight of Icarus. Uh, fly on your wings like an eagle flies high. Um, the, the chorus is similar. Um, and I don't know, like if you put Motorhead together with Iron Maiden, you get something like a very elemental notion of power metal, right? Pale! Hey, oh. This is Brandon from Cromley, and you're listening to Terminus.
0: Alright, we are back with our first full review of the night, uh, and I am happy to bring on the second record by Shavot titled Chroniken Wheat de Neville out on Void Wanderer Productions. So, for those of you who might not have been around for it, since we have a lot of new listeners, uh, we covered the debut Shavot record back in 2021, I believe. It would have been released um, also early that year, I believe. Uh, So, Shavot is the project, the solo project of Floris Velthuis, who is the Primary member of Meslamtea and is also the drummer of Asgrau. And uh, is he involved in some other stuff? I think there's one or two other things that he's involved with. Um, Meslamtea,
1: uh, uh, oh, Sagenland.
0: Oh, yeah, um, Sagenland. Yeah, yeah also. Um, so Flores is a, a pretty big part of the Dutch black metal scene. And he seems to represent. I mean, it's not a huge scene, so there's a handful of major players. And Flores seems to represent the how would I describe it, sort of like more more urban and kind of experimental take on it. It's like a lot of the Dutch black metal sounds very rural in a cool way, and then Floris always, his work sent, always sounds a little bit more urban to me, especially on Aslanthea. Uh, uh,
1: and by his work, yeah, you mean, so a distinction would be in Asgrau, he, you know, which I think uh, we would see as sort of like the the flagship band that sort of combines a lot of different virtues of the scene. Uh he's doing um drums. Yeah, right? yeah. And where Meslamtea and he's one of the main songwriters and in Shavo this is just all him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Meslamtea so. was solo up until recently and some mm-hmm. other people are involved now. Mm-hmm. Um so uh the first Shavot record was a very solid record. Um it, was, it felt to me like Fleurus trying to reach back more directly to kind of second wave Scandinavian black metal in a more direct, unadorned manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty good. Uh, I liked it, but I didn't really go back to it because I think that its scope was just a little bit too big. Um it was good music, but it was trying to incorporate so many different bands and ideas at the same time. It, it ended up kind of flattening it out a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: It just didn't have as much independent voice. But I was really curious to see what would happen on a follow up. So now we have it Chroniken Wheat der Neville. Uh, and. I really started paying attention because this thing's kind of taken off like a rocket. Uh, This album just came out like a month, month and change ago. And according to an interview I read today, it's like sold out of its initial run of CDs and cassettes. Oh, nice. Um, I mean, these aren't huge runs. It was like 200 CDs, but that's a lot for, you know, a random underground black metal band to sell so quickly. Um, So this is starting to pick up some steam. And that got me really curious. So upon listening to it now, I can say... Uh, I really, really like this. I think this is several um, standard deviations above the debut record in terms of overall quality, and I could see this being somewhere on my year-end list. I just enjoyed the shit out of this. Um, So what's distinct on it? Um, Here it sounds like Flores is... This is still closer to second-wave black metal than basically anything else he's done. But on one hand, it's more definitively Dutch in some of its melodic ideas. And it's also kind of closer to what we see as one of the prevailing primary spirits of Dutch blackmail, which is Take. Um, and in addition to Take, there's a lot of subtle influences from the rest of the music that Floris likes. Um, a band like Meslamtea is a great example of him just going balls to the wall, everything from every place, all the things that he likes uh, from jazz to metal to black metal to emo. Um, and here you get a, a sort of more restrained take on that. So you get traditional kind of Gravelandy riffs built out of shoegaze chords, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of this is pretty close to the mean in terms of black metal, but his unique voice as a player really adds a tremendous color to all of these songs. And I just I, I just immediately kind of fell in love with this thing and I think this is going to be regular rotation for me. But uh Black Metal guy, you are the the resident expert on the Dutch scene and you've brought most of that onto the show. So what did you think of the new Shadow?
1: Oh, I like it. Um it is very good. Uh the um uh, you know, my my opinion on this is like uh you know, like you know, you you feel more enthusiastic about it than I do, but that's just in part a because I already have my favorites in this scene, right? Mm-hmm. I I I love Gronspek by Asgrow. I I really like Last Year's Right Facade, um, mm-hmm. and for other bands, Dutch bands that are really activating, uh, specifically '90s second wave stuff, but in a regionally specific in a in a distinctly Dutch way. I think the first Keld record is still my, my favorite, um, in terms of just very, uh, have heavily, or heavily arranged, uh, harmonically dense storming black metal. But this is, uh, this is really good. Um, I think the other thing that might make me, a little more mod- modest on it than you is simply that I'm sick right now so everything, <laughs> all of my perceptions are bent toward the negative right, it's, you know, for the entire time I've been listening to it for this show it's like been hard to get excited about fucking anything so I've been pretty excited about this record I like it a lot, there are some really great parts um, the uh, I, I'm good. I can try to get on a musical level a little more into like things that you know, things that I might find to be limitations, but I'm not sure I'm right. I could be full of shit. Um so
0: it's uh Well I think wh- I, I think you could be right uh on some of it because there's um there's definitely deliberate structural restraint at work here. Uh mm-hmm. th- like compared to something like Meslante or even Asgrau, I'd say Shava is deliberately stripped down compared to those. Yeah, maybe there's there's a bit of a, uh, a
1: a bit of a deliberate formula being followed with the songwriting, but like, it, yeah, it's creativity. It's a one man project. It's creativity within enforced constraints. I, I I get that. Yeah, I don't think the songs are any more complex than the Osgrau songs, but or any less complex, right? If anything, I think in some ways they're more complex than like the songs on Facade, but like maybe written within more rigid parameters could be, that could be right. I think, um, uh, you know, what? one thing I can say is that, you know, the, the level of baseline, this is another, this is one of those scenes with very high level baseline riff craft. Um, this record combines, uh, just a plus riffs with just, uh, Again, the really good versions of troped riffs, all sort of, you know, with, as you say, Floris' distinct signature on them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, there are a lot of extremely memorable riffs. Um, I've got some stuck in my head now, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> well, uh, I thought, I thought um, when I first listened to this that this record was a great example of a sort of perfect theoretical midpoint between our preferred riffing styles in that Mm -hmm. um, this is based off of very brightly colored, sort of florid, melodic intervals that I'm into, but pared down and delivered in this colder, more austere way that Mm -hmm. you like. And I thought that was really interesting that it's a record. I I would compare this in some sense to like Gyendo's Angrep, which was another very uh, Take Mm -hmm. influenced Mm -hmm. record, um, where Mm -hmm. you've got these kind of lush, melodic voices but relatively few chords per riff. So it's got the spare cold quality while still being very bright.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you go back and listen to like um, Gronspeck or whatever, you'll find that on, you know, I think that's a general quality of Dutch stuff that that's more on the more aggressive side. It'll still have that color.
0: Mm-hmm. However,
1: I, no, I, I hear what you mean. It is, it definitely has a, it's definitely very cold. I think at its best, it's, at its best, it's very cold, and it has kind of a biting tone. Um, yeah, more sort of like, uh, more more attack riffs than mm-hmm. people who are looking for... It's weird, there are a bunch of very sort of broad, atmospheric, impressionistic riffs of the kind that, say, you got a ton of with Saganland, or that kind of like took over the last Kjeld record. Yeah. Um, you you get a lot of that but it's all delivered within this very tight aggressive package.
0: Yeah, there's a and, there's a, a real distinct effort to um continuously put those brighter riffs in direct contrast with kind of grinding yeah. second wave power chord riffs. Yes.
1: Yes, I think my question would be whether it always works. Um it, it, there's a sort of whether the high contrast whether it's whether the high contrast approach always works here that said I like the approach I mean I think it shows that shows a fundamental understanding of like second wave musical values right that that like both the more consonant and the harsher stuff has to be there um uh wh- what I'm thinking is I'm I'm so dumb today that I think I'm going to continue talking in circles unless we go to the samples yeah we can so, do so um So why don't we do a, uh, first one is just a sort of, um, kind of a dumb history lesson. Uh, so let's listen to, uh, hey kids, did you ever watch that Satyricon video with the boobs? (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's the, um, you may not have, right? If you're like a, if you're Gen Z, uh
0: oh wow yeah there's there's zoomers who listen to us who have never seen the mother north video
1: right i mean yeah music videos are now completely irrelevant right nobody probably even thinks to look them up uh but this was one of the and you know this video doesn't have the kind of ha ha cutesified meme appeal of like you know the early immortal video or whatever right um but uh this was one of the big black metal music videos. Um, and uh, it was for their hit single on Nemesis Divina, Mother North. Uh, and Satyricon is one of those bands we like to sort of shit on, on the show a lot, but it, they're also one of those bands that were very influential and not necessarily for bad reasons, right? Satyricon one of the, it's stated on the PR stuff. It's one of the main influences on this record. And, Maybe one reason is that they were a band for whom a, all the different parts of black metal came together in a pretty convincing package, right? In the same way that Immortal and Gorgoroth did around the same time. Mm-hmm. And so here you could hear all of that on Mother North, the first couple minutes of Mother North. And then I wanna compare that with the first track on uh, the Shavo record. So let's go. What what you said about the riff, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a legitimately great riff. It's it's a really good riff.
1: Now, I I raised the conspiracy theory that it was actually written by Nocturno Culto, but at least on Metal Archives, um, at, at least on Metal Archives, it is very clear that the songwriting credits are for uh, you know, Seder. So yeah. It's, um, it,
0: well, it's interesting. it's like satir Khan's one of those it's like they've just had such a bad career for so long you forget mm-hmm. that they did do some good stuff you know
1: yeah well, you know, even on this song, right you can hear there's kind of very visible seams between the parts yeah when the vocal when the vocal comes in first, right there's a kind of lurch and you can hear him trying to find a tonal not and not like in the cool way but uh. But, like, there's a lot of really good ideas on this track. And the funny thing is, at at the part we cut it out on, it goes into a, a kind of a slow section that continues way longer than it needs to. But they pull out of it, like, halfway through the song, and then there's, like, a bunch of other cool new shit that, like... And you can hear ideas that would become big being generated throughout the song. So, you know... Credit where credit is due. There's something cool going on here, um, and you can see how this would have powerfully impressed people when they first heard it, um, because they were one of the. It was one of the first bands doing this sort of thing, 1996, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so key characteristics to pick up on: barnstorming melodic riff combined, you know, uh, you know, sophisticated, hook, elaborate, sophisticated hook riff combined with uh chorus choir patches right mm. very like very prominent sort of a choral arrangement idea to it uh but not in a symphonic black metal way yeah, right? yeah. so uh so now let's go to the first track off of um uh Kronik and wheat de Neville, uh on men's ah. So we spill out into, as you say, a cool metalcore break.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that seems a, to be a consistent thing with Flores.
1: Very powerful kind of uh, Druidki riff over it. Um, I think that I think that with this, that uh, at least with this record, I don't hear as much Graveland here as you do, but I think there's a lot of the omnipresent kind of Druidki thing that's huge for these guys going on here.
0: Like. Yeah, I think in terms of Graveland, it's more of a an effect, especially mm-hmm. on some of the simpler, the simpler mm-hmm. consonant riffs. They mm-hmm. give me a sense of like that early to mid era Graveland.
1: Yeah, they can kind of like jangle. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, let's. Um, yeah, so on that, what is there to talk about? I mean, uh, the the similarities to Mother North should be apparent to the listeners, right? But how is it different? Well, for one thing, the vocal part is, which I'm assuming is a synth patch here too.
0: Uh yeah, the uh the female vocals on this record are a uh, synth patch. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, much more highly developed, right? Not just doubling the riff, uh and the riff is simpler, but the uh the the, the, chor- the choral stuff is more elaborate and it's just it's as you were saying it's just a crazily beautiful instantly memorable hook um,
0: yeah there's something just so so like wonderfully glacial about it, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it, it It's it, it's one of those things that it's like it's such a primordial black metal thing but I mm-hmm. don't think I've ever heard it arranged exactly like that before yeah, it's like if you took that that
1: you know, that one ulver track with the crazy Gregorian chant drop, yeah. <laughs> right? And you put it right at the beginning of the record and and it didn't cheapen it, right? Uh, yeah. The the um it's a strange mood to open with, too, which gets at that sort of wistful yearning aspect of the Dutch sound because whereas mother North opens very I mean this word is way overused but I think we can say that mother north is a triumphant song yeah right yeah. especially the begin that first riff right that's you know uh, the church is already burning right yeah. uh, um you know you're, you're you're cackling before the sirens show up um, but the um the but like it's Mother North starts out very triumphant. This starts off already sort of descending from a very high note, and already kind of like sounds nostalgic, crestfallen, longing, and also very cold, as you say.
0: Yeah, it's a, th- this whole record has a, a very interesting atmosphere because it's like mm-hmm. it's pretty consistently. Um, I mean, it has it, it's sort of more drony atmospheric parts, but it's it's a pretty aggressive record for the most part. But it, it's 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 aggressive and it's sad and it's kind of playful at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very interesting juxtaposition, because um, actually we were we were talking earlier about um, an interview that Flores did where he was talking about like his favorite records, and uh, it, it was interesting going over them. And I just recalled that the fifth one was. Um, uh starfire burning on the icefield throne of Ultima Thule, which is apparently where he got the idea to do the like pitch-shifted dramatic vocals that he'll do mm-hmm. periodically on this record. And then once you put that into relief, and you think about the theme of this record is apparently all like Dutch folklore and mm-hmm. uh, sort of you know witchcraft and stuff, you start to realize oh this is like it's sad and it's serious music, but it's very playful music at the same time. And uh- I think that's kind of neat.
1: I was wondering if it was... Uh, yeah, there's a playfulness in the composition, too, throughout, right? Mm-hmm. And just the, the sort of in, s- seemingly simple inventive tricks he uses all the time. Um, but, like... Yeah, the melody does have something playful about it, too. Like, you know, a weirdly creepy nursery song. Um, yeah,
0: that strange but, lilting high-low stuff. Mm-hmm. But, like, <coughs> it's... um.
1: Uh, you know, I wonder, you know, the album cover is pretty, pretty interesting. It's a, just this sort of like moonlit blue scene of a witch burning, right? And in this, this is, there are many, many ways of treating this theme and in this version, right? The idea is that the Christians are made to look sort of, uh, satanic, right? Monstrous. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there was a witch-burning track on the, you know, on Bloodfire Fire, Death uh, by Bathory. So the old theme, um, but I'm I'm wondering if that's not just like an ongoing background preoccupation of the record, even if the songs individually might be about this or that folktale or this or that sort of uh, legendary creature or whatever, if that whole sense of um, mourning is kind of constantly present. I remember, you know, Arianne with with Saganland talked about the importance of the feeling of nostalgia, right? Which is, you know, different from the Mother North feeling. Nostalgia is a yearning for the past from the present. And there are a lot of different ways of doing it, right? Meslamtea or Saganland, you have sort of your your forlorn, you're walking through the Dutch fields, the fields of Dutch modernity forlorn. Mm -hmm. But here, there's like some sort of uh, um dealing with the initial moment when those those tr- traditions those those links to the past are frayed and sometimes severed
0: yeah they, it, well i mean it's it definitely comes across musically it is preoccupied with pretty sad melodies you know sad mm-hmm. and sometimes triumphant melodies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but I think, uh, I think that was a good point. You know, there is an immediacy to this, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it really is, I think, in a sense, trying to transport the listener back to the moment rather than viewing it from a distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's really cool. I think there's, there's a, a remarkable. Um, Flora sounds like he's just like very immediately accessing a lot of simple but powerful ideas. And I think that translates across musically as well. That is about simple, powerful ideas arranged very artfully.
1: That might be one of the reasons you associate it with Graveland, right? Yeah, I I was thinking, for instance, of that. There's that sort of very bold, martial melody that crops up about two thirds of the way through the sample. Like, uh, and I could hear you making that association there.
0: Yeah, um, I I think there's. uh, I, I don't think it's as obvious. I think it's especially. It's clearer, I think, like in the mid-range of the record mm-hmm. where t- yeah. there's a cluster of kind of slower songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, where it's doing kind of like its, it's coldest, most um, sort of remote work, I think that's where it starts to come across.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about... I think we've got... You've got something about song structure, right? And I think, yeah, now we want to talk about album structure and song structure. And... Uh, the album has a fairly... Um, it's not necessarily the usual structure for an album, but it has a pretty just in, intuitive... This is might be kind of what you meant by, like, the working with a restricted framework. It's got a straightforward, familiar way of organizing it, which is you open with three rippers, just, mm-hmm. you know, very exciting, very catchy songs all the way through. You do a a few middle tracks that are more sort of digressive and departures and then you sort of uh pull it back together more uh, at the end
0: yeah that's definitely what mm-hmm. happens here mm-hmm. um <clears throat> so i'm gonna go to the third track um right before things start to slow down and get more atmospheric um with the song hex and one um, which is maybe my favorite song on the record Um, this is a pretty long sample. It's going to be like, uh, almost three minutes long, but I have to do it to show off the structure. Um, so here, uh, is where we're going to start to really hear that interplay between grinding more chromatic, uh, second wave power chord riffs and these more elegant, uh, Dutch melodic black metal riffs. Um, but what I really want to draw attention to is the, uh, The way the structure of the song amps itself up toward the sort of climax riff in the middle of the song, that is not what you suspect. The climax riff isn't like a huge florid sort of uh, French melody or something. It's actually a very simple sort of chord progression, but voiced in these lovely kind of shoegaze chords with Mm -hmm. with a synth accompaniment. And I think it's a really cool counterintuitive thing to do to make your climax just the simplest, boldest moment on the song and then uh, continue the chaos on either side of it. When you get to that that simple like three chord phrase that I'm calling the climax riff. Mm-hmm. Holy shit! Because it's it, it, well, I mean it's it's not a black metal riff. It's like a a a complex, pretty like melodic metalcore thing or something. It's it's I don't know exactly what it is. It's something yeah, it's more from the punk scene.
1: Shoe it's you know shoe gaze is a good comparison. Shoe gaze screamo. But the cool there is still like. Like, you know, I think like um, the the main the keyboard the the synth patch that sort of hits the foreground is very shoegazy, and the way it harmonizes with the main riff, but the stuff in the background is still kind of uh, well, it's it's black metaling in a very yeah melodic metalcore-y way. I don't know, it kind of sounds like fucking Japanese screamo.
0: Yeah, no, no, it totally does, and I and I like um like this is and it's all about the tiny things. Like I like how on that synth line,
1: the do 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 is like that's a very screamo turnaround.
0: Yeah, but I like um I like the subtlety of like on that synth line, um he's not he's not hitting the root note on the one he's like sliding into it, like almost accidentally, but he keeps Mm -hmm. repeating with that little lower, like full step interval or something sliding into it, Mm -hmm. it, which just adds so much richness to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the, obviously on the run up to it, it's just back and forth, hard contrast between these just like hard bitten, grinding, more dissonant riffs and these really elegant, dreamy Dutch melodic black metal riffs. Um, and I, this is a case where I like how blocky it is. I like how sharp the contrasts are. It's like you're being told two parallel stories that are meeting at the middle of the song and then branching off again. Um, I, I I do want to say something that I just had in the notes. It's like I like this record so much because it sounds like Take and it sounds like Asgrau, but it sounds also like Herolorn, which means that it sounds like funeral pyre, which means that it sounds like the carrier, and it sounds like all the, yeah. this this intersection of all these things I really like in one place. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And it sounds like uh, it sounds like winter I, so
1: I like all those things too. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's like yeah. it is the like. And it's cool having spoken to Flores before that he readily admits that sort of like the odder edges of metalcore are a substantial part of what he's into. And I think I think in general, I've, I've probably said this before on a Meslantea review, Flores has basically the single best articulation of post-black as an idea. Um, mm-hmm. And that comes through here, even on a much more substantially straight up black metal record. The, the technique oh, okay. lives on.
1: Oh yeah. The middle of this record is, or the middle of this track is just very much in that world. Uh, the, um, and you get funny things too, because this record works like a 92nd wave record and is inspired by that. Right. In part the high contrast approach, the, um, uh, you know, deliberate discontinuity in the songs, uh, the, the speed, the fact that he uses grinding kind of riffs that other people have forgotten or don't like, uh, you know, that's all going to signal the North Second Wave. However, you get people in the comments, and this is, you know, classic black metal promotion comments, which is like, people say it sounds like the 90s, and it, it doesn't at all.
0: No, it's, it doesn't. It's, it, it, it appreciates it's, those things, exactly. but it's, it's certainly yeah. extremely modern. And,
1: Yes. And the parts that that a lot of the, the sort of the parts that they might find catchiest or most compelling could never have been written back then. Um, and are written through this sort of, and have a lot to do with the very distinct kind of thing they've been brewing in the Netherlands for like 20 years. Um, it's, uh, you know, um, what else do I like there? I mean, I, I just obviously really like the, uh, very stern, uh, The very stern, epic chords.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that 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 double time version with that da 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 da, da, mm-hmm. da which yeah. it, I my point is, it, it's actually a very like early Cradle of Filth thing. Mm. Um, yeah, like on their thrashy moments, they'll use those sort of grinding interrupter riffs between longer melodic passages.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Keld does that too with it, the, sort of like um, brutal keyboard parts.
0: Um, yeah, yeah,
1: you know, like you have the keys just sort of directly harmonizing the grind riff. Um, Uh, directly following the grind riff. Um, anyway, um, yeah, that, that song is awesome. And I agree with you that it is extreme. I really liked your description of it as like two intersecting narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you get the sense that maybe there's a, um, there's a witch doing peaceful, beautiful, witchy things who then gets, uh, has, has some sort of ugly experience. Even that, that lovely choral theme that you highlighted, right? It cuts off abruptly hmm um it, it it the the i the interrupter riff i think actually comes in early,
0: yeah it just um, smashes it it, <laughs> it
1: literally interrupts it yeah it's um uh, <coughs> you know so i think at its best this music is very highly developed narrative music and so that's where i'm gonna go on my next sample on on my next sample it's like uh it's uh, there may be a couple ways of approaching it. here. I've, I might have some things backwards in my notes relative to where I want to go now, but um, uh, there might be a tension basically between the fact that he the best songs are very, you know, because the record right music like harmonically musically structurally, uh, the record works through these high-contrast change-ups, right? And Flores is really good at negotiating these, in part because he understands harmony, and, like the last band, he understands key changes, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is a thing few modern BM guitarists want, can or want to touch with a 10-foot pole, right? Uh, key changes and stuff, right? Or even just shifting tonal centers in a dramatic way. Um, so, you know, doing key changes in your song is a very emperor thing to do, right? Uh, Um, and so he's really good at doing it. Uh, and it's part of what gives the music this narrative dimension. Uh, um, but like, sometimes it doesn't really work. I think it's pulled off very skillfully on a musical level, but over the course of the song, it maybe doesn't quite add up to much. So I, I only want to sample, you know, I, I like this record. I only want to sample tracks I like, but I would highlight uh, track five's Vart Vater as being one where it doesn't really work. Um, tons of great riffs, but I think the song as a whole comes out a bit less than the, the sum of its parts mm-hmm. um, because it puts like, you've got like, each of these songs has at least three moods that's ba- that are basically rapid fire collidering with each other. And one of those moods, that is this sort of, uh, the, the, the tenderest, most gossamer moods is really a big leap from the other two or three moods. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're throwing, tho- throwing those into the middle of a grinding four-minute song is, can be really hard. And in that case, we have a bunch of themes swapping around with the skill of classical music, but without the developmental direction. So by the end, it's just A-B trading on epic riff, uh, harsh riff, and that's just where it cuts off. Yeah. Right? So, like, I, I, I kind of wonder if, as you say, the deliberately spare riff, riff, riff songwriting on here, um, the, the structures, I, I wonder if he's already outgrowing his uh, enforced conceit. Like, yeah, I mean, given the, the grasp of narrative is so strong that sometimes he can do it in like five minutes, but sometimes he needs like you need more time to let those
0: ideas breathe. I, I think, given the the pace of Floris's output, mm-hmm. um, I it's like I know that he's working on like another three fucking records between different mm-hmm. projects mm-hmm. That, that are gonna like come mm-hmm. out this year or early next year. Um, I could see that. I think that for him, it's almost like a seal and in situation where he's just like constantly going and then he's done with it. And then he's just immediately moving on to, to the next thing to develop. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so I hope he, I mean, obviously I hope he keeps developing it. I just think like there's so many, uh, some of these ideas I think would work better on a bigger canvas. And it's like, maybe the conceit for this project shouldn't just be this sort of like, tight block-based song structure but should he should just embrace the narrative thing that he seems to have started doing kind of naturally. I
0: song get structure. you. So do the do yeah. the five-track yeah. album that this is already kind of trying to gesture toward. Something like that. Yeah, because like if you've got like a ripping four-minute song,
1: I would argue that the strength of that format is not like necessary if you can manage to create a narrative in that time great. He does a couple times on this record. But like the strength of that that particular form is delivering a singular mood or an intensity some irreducible impulse even if it has multiple tones or moods within it you bring it together into like one thing and it, it it does that in this concerted way um whereas you know maybe it's it's and you know I don't know, Asgrau has highly compact, unified mood, even when there's kind of a big harmonic range being traversed. Um, mm-hmm. some, of these, some of these tracks, like, I think would work better maybe as pure rippers, and others want to be developed, like, to, to more just on a bigger canvas I don't know
0: does that sort of make sense no I get it yeah yeah you just think that there's opportunities if he loosens some of the rigorous strictures that he's put upon I mean all of these songs are you know pretty much in the four to five minute range and that's probably very deliberate Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe there is opportunity if he kind of lets that go and allows some of the stuff to go further
1: yeah so um uh, so, now I want to give an example of what a track that I think does it really well, just as you highlighted song structure. Um, the closest thing to an epic we get is the second to last track, Niet alleen de avant vault, maybe something about Heaven's vault. Um, I don't know. You know, Dutch is basically the. As weird as the language looks written, it's closer to English than anything else, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so,. Uh, we're going to uh, start on the uh, second round of an AB riff trading set, and then he's going to go, we're going into the outside middle section of the song, and you'll hear him really giving ideas, the idea is time to breathe. That that last riff might be my favorite riff on the record.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's it's phenomenally good. It, uh, I, 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 but part of it is like this has such a phenomenal guitar tone. I love mm-hmm. the guitar tone on this. It's so I it's, like I it a lot too. It's just it's so crisp and clear, and it has so much tone color. It's just it's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So I will. Um, I'm gonna bookmark that. But yeah. Well, I, we could talk about it there, right? The tone. The 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 biting edge on the tone really allows all the texture of those chords to stand out, mm-hmm. right? Not in a lush texture kind of way, but in a uh, stark, uh, elemental shape kind of
0: way. Yeah, those are all like diatonic chords. But,
1: yeah, and it goes Zah. so. And this is that is a quintessentially Dutch black metal melody. You come in with the, and it sort of synthesizes the record's strengths. You come in with that lilting falling. Thing that you could almost approximate to shoegaze, and then just on the last two chords, you get that like, you know, uh, gunmetal gray, cold steel aspect in the hardest Dutch stuff. Right, that squalling bottom tone comes in on the second to last chord.
0: Yeah, it it, it, t- it, it turns away from its own sentiment. Yes, and, and
1: but even there, you could throw that chording in an emo song. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. just it would be do, doing something different in, in the song. But like it, you know, there's so there's an intense continuity uh, there. He has completely fused the most violent and most pensive aspects of the record. And that's what all the best, although we can talk about, sure, you do the harsh part, you do the more grandiose part, whatever. Right. The best bands of the second wave always found ways to do them at the same time. Um and so, so that's really good, but also, right we should talk about the structure leading up to it. so um, you're talking about what the tone allows him to do. Well, uh, you know, we do that sort of straightforward riff trade, and then we get the immensely indulgent hero Lawrence strut. Right? yeah <laughs> which which is a moment where he pulls out exactly the kind of riff all the nowadays underground BM guys want, right mm-hmm. you know, um. That's a, again, what people would label a triumphant riff or whatever, right? Uh, and one thing that makes it good, well, A, just it is a really good version of a riff like that. Two, part of the power is in the rhythmic delivery. And if he didn't have the guitar, if he had either a blurry distortion, a blurrier, warmer distortion, or a, uh, a lazier trem, it wouldn't work half so well. But you have that, like, um, just the trem almost doesn't slow down in the mid-tempo riff, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's very sharp, and the tone, um, uh you know, the the guitar tone captures that, captures the picking really well.
0: Yeah, it's a it's at a very specific sweet spot when it comes to its gain settings, in that it's like it's got just like that hair of jangle, um, Mm -hmm. but not so much that you're in that like sort of raw black territory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And and the big thing that like really strikes me is like, especially like playing in a couple black metal bands now, people overdo gain really easily, which just smothers Mm -hmm. tone color really bad if you overdo it. Here, yeah. clearly, Floris prizes himself on... He wants every note to be very articulate, especially when he's dealing yes. with very subtle, sort of textured cording. Um, everything needs to ring out, or it just doesn't really make sense. Um, and he puts that to really good use in a record that is full of very dynamic, very unusual chord voicings. He he wants you to be able to hear those intricacies.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. The... Um so that is, done. It, it also really brings, like, I guess the other rhythmic thing there, right, is the tension between the laid-back pocket swagger of yeah. the mean, and the basic rhythmic structure of the riff, and then the uh, intensity of the playing and the tone positioning. Um, but yeah, dude, um, and also as when we got into the sort of um, arpeggiated acoustic-ish part, right, you were like, only Flores could pull this off.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, because it's the part that sucks when everyone else does it.
1: Yes, and in part, it's because, as you said, it sounded like amateurs. Well, it sounds like amateurs, but good, right? Mm-hmm. The whole problem with bands, b- black gaze bands, is that they are they don't actually listen to shoegaze. And yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so for him, if he does a part like that, it's basic, the the ways of courting the... Um, Everything's going to be actually informed, but it's going to be the better for sounding less like black metal, right?
0: Um, yeah, I think that's really important. I think that Flores has this like wonderfully light touch on how he incorporates his stuff outside of metal. Um, he knows that it's not supposed to sound like metal, and the way you get it to interact with other parts is not by forcing one into the other, but structuring a song in such a way that there's like a naturalistic relationship between them.
1: Yeah, 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 and, um And the, uh, yeah, he doesn't flatten anything. It relates to what you were saying about the tone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no flattening. Lots of, I mean, one thing I really like about <coughs> this, this record for sure is that, yeah, that value of clarity, that cl- clarity of form, musical crispness. Um, yeah, so, and I think everyone could probably hear the way that, you know, he hung out in each part for a much longer time. And even though on paper, they were almost completely disjointed from each other. Uh, they, there was a very
0: natural movement. Yeah. He has a very intuitive sense of how to make these high contrast Mm -hmm. things work. Um, okay. So last sample, last track on the album, De Lattste Dans Um, So at the end of a record like this, which has been hinting at a lot of um, a lot of tradition, as well as like a lot of like highly novel guitar technique, you would kind of expect this to be the track that pulls out all the stops and just like goes completely off the rails into like some of Flores's weirdest influences. But that's not what happens here. The last song is this really frosty, sort of deliberately spare riff slideshow with just Mm -hmm. a collection of, like, beautifully cold, angular riffs, Mm -hmm. and it's just fucking awesome. I don't really have a ton to say about it, except for the fact that all of these riffs rule. They go into each other really well, and it's one of those things that, like, proves why one-man black metal should still exist. Like the riffs.
1: That's my favorite song. about how good Everlong by Foo Fighters is, uh, which led us to a discussion of, which led us back to Swarm, the Japanese Screamo band, which leads us back to Kanashimi, the Japanese DSBM band, who are now releasing what, he says this is not a DSBM record, it is a Black Doom record, uh, and it is called Yamiuta. It's out on Tallheim Records, and I found this because I thought, what the hell am I going to find this week? So, of course, I went to my first stop when I'm feeling lazy, Rights of Pestilence. <laughs> um, so, uh, it's on his channel. It's also up on the label page. Um, uh, so, Kanashimi is apparently by a member. Uh, the, his pen name is Misanthropy. Uh, he's a member of Afdema, a or Apadema A-H-P-D-E-G-M-A um and that sort of LLN type name rang a bell with me uh and he belongs to the AAAA collective along with Anguis Dei Arca Sua and Absolutized we've talked about Arca Sua a little bit on the show uh and I think I've played them in an interlude at some point um
0: yeah, and I think the, uh, I've heard so, some Absolutize before as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are like the, the Arcasua was a kind of pretty important band in the 2000s basically. Um uh so he he has a proud pedigree um and in this case, you know, this is this is solo stuff. Uh This is one of those records that um it took me like four minutes to decide whether I liked it. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, yeah, it took me a minute to be like, okay, what exactly is he doing in here? And then four minutes in, I was like, okay, this is good. And it's going to continue being good to really good for the rest of the record. Um, And sure enough, it is. Uh, It all sounds the same, but in a really good way. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this is a, this is a great record. It's, you know, it could be an excellent record.
0: Yeah. It's 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 really good and it's like yeah it all sounds I mean it's DSBM it's supposed to. I mean it, mm-hmm. <laughs> in most black metal we're not looking for uh heterogeneous textures and in DSBM yeah, yeah. we're certainly not looking it, for it.
1: It's a it's a very homogeneous texture but it's a very elaborate one. It's mm-hmm. like a it's like a, a tapestry that sort of all looks the same from a distance and then you zoom in, and it's like every section or panel of it has a ton of rich detail that just all works according to the same structural principles. As yeah, it's one.
0: it's it's densely arranged in the Japanese manner.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of cool to have this on the same the same episode as me talking about love bites. Just because it's like mm-hmm. the, the fact that you're able to draw parallels between those two. There's something so consistent about Japanese melodic voicing. It's it's mm-hmm. always interesting to listen to.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, in both cases, you get sort of uh, power metal or DSBM. You get people who are truly familiar with classical music, know how to play it, and who are purposefully deploying it to make more pop forms of melody. Mm-hmm. Um, so two things that this initially remi- immediately reminded me of when I heard it um, were, one, this is like Midnight Betrothed, if it didn't suck. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking in particular of the keyboard parts right Midnight Betrothed has is clearly an, influenced by anime soundtrack but just anime soundtrack and often ends up sounding like mall piano mm-hmm. this is getting the classical music and the uh everything else straight from the source as, as well as from clearly very influenced by soundtracks uh, and probably video game soundtrack as well mm-hmm. uh, um it's just uh there's just like he's this is not classical music by any means and it's not even like symphonic black metal but there's a mastery of those kinds of phrases that is being put to use in this more uh um deliberately accessible immediate uh pop impact way um uh the other is cacta rock Mm-hmm. um and uh, especially the kind of soundtracky mood of the interludes and the outro, uh, and the general um, sad anime protagonist conceit, which you will see on the cover of this record also. And in some of, I think more clear, yeah, the cover of this record has, a it kinda has a Pale Swordsman feel to it. Um, yeah,
0: it's, it's that sort of, it's deliberately artistic gloom. Yes.
1: And it's interesting uh, because this guy is um, far uh, that guy's senior artistically, right? But he's responding to it in some way, which we will come back to. It shows the impact that the um, Pale Swordsman has already had. um, And uh, we'll come back to that later in their view.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it's, uh, It's interesting to see people respond to that. And respond to it in a bunch of different ways. I mean, Rock has at this point already transcended kind of the black metal scene. I mean, he was supposed to play at Roadburn, but he wasn't able to get his visa in order. I, mm. I was I was just thinking about this the other day. And I was like, so in like two albums from now, Rock basically just invents blackened pop, and that just becomes a self sustaining thing for the future. Imagining him at Roadburn is surreal. Yeah, like, but it's like the Im- footprint Im- of that record is that big. Yeah, it, yeah.
1: Just, I mean, I just I have a hard time. It, like, imagine like Alan Averill taking a drag from a cigarette as Kekka goes on stage. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> what like bizarre? Imagine just all these like grizzled fifty year old lifers with Celtic knot tattoos being like, what the
0: fuck is this? Yeah, I know. It's it's fascinating, it's, but it, mm-hmm. but it also, I mean, it points to. I, I mean, we all basically understand that the, the the collective fiction of black metal as exclusively underground music is, like, permanently dead, right?
1: Yeah, of course. No, I mean, it was in a, this had, we, we can talk about the Kector Rock question at the end of the review, yes, but I understand this had to happen
0: yeah but but I think it it feeds back into talking about this album because this is an album that directly responds to it it directly responds to the pop tendencies found within d s b m um but i think it it in it, en- it engages with that idea in a really weird interesting way um because this is this is an extremely sad record but it also seems very spiteful and self-aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have a a really strange blistering hot take about this record in that I think that there's a, a lot of material on it melodically that's like deliberately saccharine and sort of deliberately mm-hmm. deliberately cleaved from the most sentimental moments of mm-hmm. anime soundtracks. Del- deliberately a bit cliche. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think that um, I think this is a a sort of record about sadness that is built out of cultural detritus in a way where it's like bits of anime and video game soundtracks and bits of black and doom metal and bits of just sad Japanese pop music sort of collage together into this miserable fucking thing, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I, I was thinking, I didn't do a very good job of explaining what's distinguishing about the piano, so we can, what you're saying, yes, makes sense, and let's talk about it in relation to the piano lines, like, so, there's important roles for the guitar and stuff, uh, the drums are very much doing the sort of, uh, doom tempo DSBM thing in the vein of Nort, which just, is just sort of there's timekeeping. time, yeah. It's sort of despondent timekeeping. It could be, it's literally plotting drumming, um, in a way that I usually hate. Uh, however, here it works because there's a very stately movement to the melodies, and there's a huge vocal presence. Um... Yeah. But, but the, the piano thing, um... The central voice, in a lot of ways, aside from the vocals, really is piano. And they're not like, uh, emperor-style pads and flourishes. Uh, they're much more like these pensive, right? You know, so thoughtful, introverted, kind of obsessively looping, fragmented little, little lines. Yeah. It's all, it's all
0: Shinji from Evangelion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, they, they center on like very immediately dopamine satisfying uh, intervals. Uh, You know, it's like some uh, like heavy, like not exclusively white key exactly, but like very, you know, gratifying consonant stuff. And it's like, in some of these moments it's like one step away from Vanessa Carlton mm-hmm. yeah. and I don't mean that as an insult because that one song with the do, 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 that's a great song <laughs> yeah. right? and it has a very unique kind of other. it's an odd it ju- stands out in the pop landscape because on the one hand it is cultural detritus it's some junk you hear at the mall on the other hand it's like a really surreal kind of fragile uh, um uh, it, it, it's an odd and um, otherworldly song, right? It's a... So I, I mean that sort of in a good way.
0: No, I, uh, I, I get it. Yeah, and I yeah. And I think that it being sort of mall trash is an important thing for this record. Because it's like, if we want to talk about, you know, signifiers of sadness, we can... I mean, we can all have this idea of, like, <clears throat> you know, an artist's authentic display of emotion. But what do we come in contact with the most in our day-to-day lives just milling around it's it's this obnoxious cultural detritus the 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 simulacrums of emotion that just get forced on us when we're just trying to go about our day in public spaces so why that isn't inauthentic that's literally if you're going to hear sadness it's going to be in that form
1: to be fair i wish someone would force the evangelion soundtrack on me in public
0: (laughs) Actually, if you want to, if, if you want to do that, DM me. I'll pay you. Well, you know, I've got the fat goth girl in Jinko's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's um, let's yeah. let's listen to some of it. Let's listen to the first track. It's called the Funeral Song. Of course, mm-hmm. um, it's an eight-minute song. The first like six minutes, we're gonna play at the end of the song. Basically, the first six minutes are just droning and trundling and wallowing, and then. The big climax moment, all this spiteful, caustic stuff, culminates in just pure anime soundtrack, and it's weirdly disappointing, but in the right way. Uh, there's a lot of like strange, dense arpeggiated stuff going on for the majority of this song. And then big preparatory moment. And then it's, it's just this very just fastball down the middle fucking anime soundtrack piano line that comes. in. it's like, it's all, it's all plaintive and it's like a starry sky and everything. And then it's sort of just, Congeals into this more morbid-sounding francophone kind of passage uh, mm-hmm. on on the piano. So yeah, there's that
1: that cabaret influence and in yeah Chinese stuff. Yeah.
0: But but the overall arc of the song is like it it never actually has the release that it's supposed to because when you get to that anime soundtrack part, it like rings almost deliberately hollow. Um, hmm. I feel like this record is the sound of sort of inarticulate pain because something I thought that was interesting is like so I I haven't heard this guy before but his first demo was back in 07 so Mm -hmm. now this is 15 plus years into the project which probably puts this guy into his 30s at least Mm -hmm. being depressed in your thirties is very different from being depressed when you're 20. You know, it's, uh, it it has a, a color all its own. And with the two of us as people prone to bouts of severe depression, it definitely feels different now than it did when you were a teenager. Right.
1: Oh yeah. Um, well for one thing, because I know what it's called now, but, um, yeah. Uh, Um, but, um, but it's uh yeah ab- absolutely um you have a um you know there's you know you get through in part you get through life by trying not to indulge yourself right mm-hmm. in certain ways right try not to try not to be sad right and so when this record lets itself be really sad it does so with a wry grin uh and yeah. it reaches and it reaches for the nearest trope available like a bottle of whiskey
0: Yeah yeah I- exactly it's, it it's it's fascinating cuz it's like it's, you're a guy that you just you've learned how to survive it you got past mm-hmm. your teenage years and early 20s like the mm-hmm. most dangerous section right, kind right, of right, right, right. <laughs> and so it's like okay, so now I know how to navigate day-to-day life, I still feel shitty, but you have to kind of calcify just to deal with that. You gotta go to work, you know? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, here's, here's the thing. I mean, this has been said many times, but you don't understand it when you're a kid. Like, people will be, would be like, oh, people don't understand Morrissey's songs are supposed to be funny. And oh, yeah, yeah, they're hilarious. Now that I go back and listen to it, it's way more obvious to me, in part because, like, I remember, like, when I listened to the Smith self-titled, I would, like, just skip the first two tracks because they were in a major key. Fuck that. I don't need it. Um, And you listen to it now, and I can listen to it more. Oh, it's sort of like folk rock and glam and stuff, and the lyrics are hysterical. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's like... I mean, obviously, like, there are certain obvious jokes in Morrissey songs, right? Like, Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others is a funny song. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right? But, like, the...
0: But knowing um, that uh, heaven knows I'm miserable now is yes. like funny. Yes. That's about mm-hmm. being an adult and being yes. depressed. You know, <laughs> there's there's
1: a tremendous, or or even in the most like, yeah, you know, I mean, to the to the people who are exclusively irony pilled, right? I would say, well, the point is also that even, you know, the Morrissey socks are also deeply, deeply sad, right? Yeah, but yeah. like in um, you know, mother, you know. There's uh, the sort of uh, I know it's over or whatever, right? Is a I as a kid I heard as just this devastatingly sincere song, and it is that, but it's also really funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I know it's over, and yet it never really began. But in my heart, it was so real. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's perfect. That's the yeah. ins, that's yeah. the incel that's,
0: anthem, dude. <laughs> yeah, once
1: that's happened to you a few times, right? You're like. It's yeah, like, oh, it becomes we're, funny.
0: We're doing this one again, I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, an- another thing that I want to bring up, uh, I mean, you covered a lot of the musical stuff. I, I, like we said, this is a, a record made out of all the same raw material. Mm-hmm. Um, but my weird left field comparison for this band was, I assume you're familiar with uh, the Garo Gary Gay, the Noisecore band. No, but I love hearing you say it every time you mention them. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Japanese, like, seminal Japanese, like, noise band. Um, But the main guy, Yamatsuka, uh, did a release under that band's name called Endless Humiliation, which is, like, a huge fucking, like, uh, hallmark, like, experimental Uh, record for me it's super influential to a lot of the shit that I do and all it is is um, Yamatsuka improvising on piano a lot of jazz idioms a lot of totally dissonant stuff as well as a lot of like delicate plaintive classical stuff for like 45 minutes with a field recording of like a homeless alcoholic Japanese man yelling and grumbling about who the fuck knows that sounds awesome Oh, uh, it's incredible. It's it's yeah. an absolute endurance test, but it's it's one of those things where it like it really it's one of those one out of every 100 things that kind of justifies performance art and justifies mm-hmm. the idea of taking the artist's story into yeah. account. Shit like that. it's really interesting. But I get a really yeah. similar vibe off this. There is definitely a mm-hmm. drunk miserable asshole quality about
1: yes. this. Yes. Drunk karaoke, you know, like um yeah, I, I think that's the point. When I said the Smith stuff for for listeners, right, when I say the Smith stuff is funny, it is bitterly funny. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the whole point is it's... And, you know, that's another thing that uh, links this guy to um, our favorite Japanese screamo band, Swarm. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, w- his vocal delivery is very similar to those... It's it's actually, as far as I can tell, really unusual in DSBM. It's oh, yeah, very, It's very forward. It's very melodic, but there's still this like guttural, uh, you know. There's a uh, a, almost a Motorhead growl under. There's like a crust vocal, a crust punk vocal underneath it. Yeah, it's 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 like
0: groaning.
1: Yes, it's it's growling. It's he moves from a groan to a growl, and he does it all with tone in basically the same method Lemmy did, but just turned into like now he's doing just like.
0: karaoke cabaret night yeah yeah it's like after after his day at his shitty job as a salary Mm -hmm. man he's Mm -hmm. gonna go get tanked (laughs) on Suntory (laughs) so so speaking of which right a constant (laughs) feeling
1: in these songs is sort of uh the song seems to get lost or stuck right it'll just get in what you think you think like huh, is this like a holding pattern, right? Is the song about to get bad? And, uh, no. Um, but it's this, like, obsessively repeating last drink of the night, one more song, everyone sing along, that just keeps dwindling and dwindling. <laughs> Until you're the last and, person in the bar yes. and everyone wants to go yeah. home. <laughs> exactly, and just <laughs> when they kick you out to go home, something happens. You know, so as I, like, uh, the sample was supposed to show the song kind of getting stuck in a holding pattern and then opening up. But, like, when we were listening to that first part, like, uh, I, you know, it, it comes on a lot of, like, highly repeated stuff. I think it does build up tension. You can clearly hear the downward spiral aspect of the melodies there. Mm-hmm. But the it's just the composition is just like explosions of color one after another. Um, the you know this is not a case where he's like lingering on a bargain basement anime piano line. It's pop songwriting, yeah. But it's just like, I mean, we were talking with Love Bites about the the chord changes, right? Yeah, uh, and we were talking with um fucking. Uh, Shava about or Shava or whatever I made it sound like Hebrew. Um, Shava, um, uh, we were talking about the uh, the chord changes as well, and here the way he rolls through a number of real formally structured uh, chord changes, and you know pulls in major key in a way that is not done in. Western black metal right now, like major key stuff in Western stuff sounds really different. Um, it, uh, it's just really powerful. There's there, there's one one big move after another. Um, even as his voice is sort of trailing off, winding down, everything is descending, uh, and then you get that break and. The bass melody that follows isn't actually that different, but you get something, like, that's the closest... One of the moments that's closest to a traditional DSBM part on the record. Mm-hmm. With just, you know, the arpeggiated guitar comes to the fore. Um I just think through the whole thing, they're just beautiful chords and uh, that sort of elegiac, processional melody. Um So, now, I think, like... You've emphasized the bitterness of it, right? And the sort of the, the pessimism. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to attempt to put a, well, not, not really different spin, just an additional element to that, uh, a more positive element to that. It's, um, so the song gives you extreme boredom leading to a kind of breakthrough, right? But the key thing is that the breakthrough is certainly not happy, not that you would, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's also not even like triumphant, right? Right. So we, you know, we both like uh, DSBM that can have some of the triumphant or martial elements. So we always talk about Nyctalgia or Kaltetod or Early Drowning in the Light, yeah. Um, or Suicidal Emotions by uh, the, you know,
0: Abyssicate. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Um. However, this this does not have that at all. The breakthrough is even more sad. It's that it, you go from like the sort of um the sort of convention structured sadness of popular song late night in the karaoke bar kind of thing that you you were saying. Yeah yeah you go into this much more open expressive voicing of the same idea over just the the cycling uh, the cycling arpeggios uh. And it releases dopamines in the way that, like, a good, um, you know, in, in a sort of, like, payoff big... Tri- in the way that a big consonant triumphant hook does in a BM song. But it just does it in an even more sad way. You know? You move from... It's, it moves from, like, company to loneliness, right? It's just desolate at the end. But there's also something uh, that is releasing or fulfilling about that part. Um, And I think this leads to, it gets at a bigger question, which is like, why don't DSBM artists all actually put their money where their mouth is and kill themselves? Right?
2: That's,
1: that's a question all sorts of smart asses on the internet have asked, including us, for years, right? This, yeah. In the early 2000s, when the, genre, when the genre was a much bigger trend, right? That's the kind of wisecrack everyone would always make. That's but a classic, in some, yeah. In some sense, it's a fairer question, because... Although there are very sad exceptions to this rule where the music really is just somebody's death wish, right? Mm. And sometimes it's very harrowing, brilliant music, right? Uh, yeah. There's, it, they keep going because there's something life-affirming about the music, right? If nothing else, they like playing depressing black metal, right? Why wake up? Well, I guess I can make another really depressing black metal record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and And so it's... There's there's something life affirming happening here, but it's not like catharsis, right? Which is this like bar, this really entry level theory of music, right? Oh, I, I, you have I think, that.
0: What? I think I might hate that more than any other explanation yes. of the appeal of extreme metal. Uh, absolutely, yes,
1: yes. Uh, the, have negative emotion. Uh, experience music, get it out. Right. Um, obviously, nobody who seriously listens to extreme music uh, listens to it to make the emotion go away. Right? No, we're looking to enhance it. <laughs> yes, you are listening to aggressive black metal to increase your aggression and sharpen yourself to a keen edge against the shit world around you. Right? You uh, listen to very sad black metal because you want to feel more sad, and if you think it's going to release that sadness, you're gotta be kidding. Um, this music will make you feel worse, right? Uh, you know, like, um, yeah, like, 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 the Kanashimi record will make you feel worse, but there is something pleasurable about it, and there's something, uh, worthwhile about it. And I think the point is, like, given this level of desolation, pessimism, you know, you say, like, just... Maybe hopelessness, as you would say, and and also bitterness, w- what's left? well, uh, the music is really beautiful, right? yeah well, I you mean can, you can take that level of you can take all that pain and you can express it in this sort of uh crystallized radiant form there that you've done something worthwhile
0: yeah i mean like insofar as something approaching catharsis happens it's the process of like materializing negative emotion
1: mm-hmm. yeah, it's,
0: yeah it's it's yeah it's
1: it's out there causing negative emotions for other people
0: yeah well it's um. like you, you can kind of like you can grasp you know the unhappiness a little bit more when you can you know put it into a thing you know, and, you know, that it becomes a totem yeah. of your emotions. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Well, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and that's one of the things that I like so much about this record. is like, it's it's a... We, DSBM can often be very juvenile. And to some degree, it should be. Like, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I believe that it's good to always keep a little bit of that teenager inside yourself. Because that's yeah. like, that energy is from which like creative chaos grows, which is good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I like that this is a very like adult reserved kind of sad record. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I guess just to touch on something else, it's like everybody, you know, as, as a substantially depressed person, everybody's got their own process. And I always like, you know, when the guys say, well, why don't they all kill themselves? I'm like, well, don't worry, buddy. Plenty of my friends did. Yeah, on the way here, like a bunch of them like close friends of mine and it sucks and it's yeah, you find a way to get through and everybody has their own process I understand that you're extremely cool and you're above it all or whatever but, you know, mm-hmm. good in that case, if, you, if this doesn't resonate with you and you don't understand it f- thank God you, you've done well you know, I, I I'm yeah. sorry. It's just like like get fucked. It's like I'm sorry if you don't understand it. You don't fucking need to. It doesn't yeah. exist for you. <laughs> like, yeah. Um. Anyway, sorry. I had to. I, I I've been kind of miserable the last few weeks, so it's like yeah, yeah, me, you know. me too, bud. Yeah. Um. We, we always have our, our moments. Um. So, speaking of which, talking talking about like just inarticulate pain and. Uh, just that's what i like so much about this record is at once it's very adult and reserved in the sense of like being a depressed kid who becomes mm-hmm. a depressed adult but right. still has to work a job and pay rent but it it holds on to this kernel of like inarticulate pain yeah. it, you know it's always a hair's
1: breadth from just going postal right? oh yeah yeah it, it feels like, like it,
0: it feels like it's going to freak out at any moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, and I've got kind of this heady idea that in a big way, one, this is a, this is a record about isolation, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yes. The cover photo, it's just him alone in what's clearly a very public area, but he is alone there. It's like in the, you know, when you're doing your karaoke songs in the bar, there's a bunch of people, but you're alone there, too. Um, and I think that this record is very distinctly Japanese and that it is about the feeling of isolation while densely surrounded by people, mm-hmm. um, which is unusual and really interesting. So think about that while we listen to a sample of the final track of the record, which is my favorite, uh, Taratsuku Basho. Um, this is like as close as the record is able to... Like in terms of actually saying what it feels, but it can, it can only approach the very edge of it. It can't quite cross the threshold because I think if you cross the threshold, you destroy yourself completely. And as the sun crests over the Tokyo horizon, I have to head home to get two hours of sleep before I put my suit on and go back to the accounting department of a multi-billion dollar company where my boss still doesn't know my name six years into my career. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, <laughs> That's just it. It's just like, fuck it. You just keep doing it. You know? <laughs>
1: yeah I, I can hear that yeah at the end it's sort of the melodies close back towards normalcy a
0: bit mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah. Um, it's like you can almost think of this record as like a, the cycle of one of those nights of like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. getting off work going to the karaoke bar getting fucked up on Suntory Nobody you're being loud and obnoxious, nobody likes you. You get kicked out, you go to one of the after hours bars, you drink more and then eventually you got to stumble home and it's just it this record is just one of an infinite series yeah. of those nights. And
1: and the best moment on the night is the part where like you are swaying alone on the
0: bridge in the night breeze, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely a vibes record. I've I, I've definitely been at this spot before. Yeah.
2: Yeah, for, for <laughs> it sure. It sucks.
1: <laughs> Is that a closer, you think? Or... Uh, it's up to you. Yeah, let's keep going. I'll do the last sample. Sure. It's, um... Uh, and let's just leave that in, the recording. But, yeah, um, sure. Yeah, the, uh... So let's go to, um... This is the, so that track is important. So the part of it you highlighted is important. And then I want to um, get to the very end of it. It ends in a really cool way. So, um, uh, and this is, it finishes with just like one of the coolest sound objects I've heard in a long while, right? It's not a term we've used too much lately in part because We've avoided certain kinds of, like, scronky, dissonant black metal. Mm-hmm. But, um... In this case, it's like a... So this is... Suddenly, we get much more, like, uh... Yeah, suddenly there's just this... This thing that's isolated from the rest of the music around it that sort of is a phenomenon that we're just supposed to hang out in for a little while. Uh... And it's kind of following up on the chiming tones of the piano. Uh, And then, after that, it breaks into the last track, and you start asking yourself, wait, is that, is it, is it him? This whole record, right? I was sort of thinking of this in sort of in parallel to Kector Rock. and then at the end, it's like, is that the is that the fucking guy? Yeah. And I, I didn't think it was, but then I looked in the notes, and it it is, right? Mm-hmm. So he does guest vocals there. Um. Uh, and I gotta say, it's it, 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 there's a structural thing going on here where Kanashimi is deliberately. Placing this song on the record in the same spot that uh, Crying Orc placed the um, the emo rap track yeah, at the yeah. end of his record, right? Um, I so he's asking us to hear the records in parallel in a way. Um, I've got to say, I think the gesture lands a lot better here. Uh, number one, because it's not emo rap. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's just emo. Um, it sounds like... Like, the vocals sound like a... Uh, I mean, you know I'm a huge AFI fan, right? Yeah, it sounds yeah. like one of the vocals... He sounds like Davey Havoc on one of the more, like, uh, sort of whimsical parts on Art of Drowning or something. Um, I think his voice has gotten better, and I think he's not hiding behind, like, the autotune affectation. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also think... And, and I like that it doesn't have the irony. It it you know it doesn't pull us out of the frame, right? Uh, the I, I didn't like that gesture on the Kekka Rock record because he spends the record establishing a very consistent atmosphere, and then there's this kind of very cheeky, knowing pop culture reference gesture at the end, sort of like breaks the fourth wall. Um, I mean I don't really get
0: that from it, but I get
1: where you're coming from. Here, I, I just feel like it's there itself. It's not just self aware, but it's also sort of like self-reflexive. It's uh um, it, there, there yeah. There's something ironic about it. On on here, it's just a much more straight delivery, uh, and I I like that. In this context, I'm willing to buy it. Um, and yeah, I mean, and could You know, although I'm criticizing things about that record, in other respects, it was a great record, and I really like his performance here.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because it just kind of just the the just the conceit of him showing up on this record is such a strange left field thing. But it's it's one of those things that like reifies Crying Orc as being like a legitimate fucking metal guy. It's like yeah, I'll do guest vocals on this completely unknown Japanese DSBM project. You know, it's sort of it's a, yeah. it's it's what gives you know kek that that sort of like real underground integrity that means that it's yeah. still worthwhile to listen yeah. to for guys like us yeah it's interesting yeah there's a much more senior musician
1: taking him very seriously uh and um you know uh yeah so uh i mean really well done there i mean the chimes are awesome the overtones on the chimes were great um uh
0: You want to wrap this one up? Um, (laughs) I don't know. You want to go to the karaoke bar?